I'm not gonna crash. I'm not gonna be that guy. I'm gonna be the one percent of people who does not get in a wreck on Nusa Panita Island, and I'm just going to shove it in all the other backpackers' faces that I did not get into a wreck in Indonesia. And the next thing you know, I'm just laying on the ground. This bike is laying on top of me. I'm bleeding everywhere, and there's people <laughs> driving by in 12 passenger vans pointing at me out the window, like taking pictures. You know, you can see all the other tourists like wide-eyed thinking, praise the Lord, we did not get an e-bike. This would have happened to us. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. I was literally going two miles an hour, and here I am in the middle of a wreckage crime scene. And welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here again today. You know, I've been so excited about this little mini-series about my backpacking trip to Asia, and today is really kicking that off. And so I hopefully I'm going to be able to get through Bali, Nepal, and maybe India today. Not sure if we'll be able to get all of India in. We'll see. But, you know, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to talk about Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, China, and a few others that I was able to visit on that trip. So I'm really excited to dive into it. I've really been mulling over in my head how I'm going to sort of go about this little series. And, you know, I think I'm just going to talk about each individual location, the things to do there, some of the experiences I had, maybe throw in a few stories to help out things. So hopefully this helps you, give you gives you some ideas for your possible backpacking trip or a trip to one of these locations, as well as keeps you entertained and livens things up a little bit for you. So I'm going to start off with uh, Indonesia, and that's simply just because I'm kind of following the path that I took on this trip, and Indonesia is where I started. And I really started there simply because it was the cheapest route from the United States. I flew from Dallas to Los Angeles. Los Angeles to Japan, Japan to Singapore, and then Singapore to Dimpasar, Bali, Indonesia. And it was pretty cheap. It was like maybe $400 for a one-way flight. That's, that's in my opinion, pretty cheap for like a 30-hour flight. Um, it was definitely the longest travel that I've ever had in my life. It spanned over three days because I crossed the international dateline. And so I left on like a Saturday or a Sunday morning and I landed like Tuesday, something crazy like that. So it was definitely a wild travel day. All of my layovers were pretty short. I had like a one hour refueling layover in Japan. I had a few hours in LA. Uh, my longest layover was a night layover. It was about six hours in the Changi airport in Singapore. But I mean, it's the, one of the nicest airports in the world. So, you know, there's movie theaters, swimming pools, indoor waterfalls, butterfly gardens, cactus gardens. So, you know, you just wander around for a little bit and the next thing you know, your flight's almost there. So, you know, it was a pretty great travel experience. I got a lot of exit row window seats, which was incredible. Can't really complain about that. It was probably the best travel flying experience I've had, you know, besides my flight back from Turkey a few weeks ago during the pandemic where I literally had a road to myself on the entire flight home from Turkey. That was pretty amazing. And this was this was pretty close to that. So starting off in Indonesia, you know, I feel like Bali, there are, there are a few places that are hot zones of backpackers in Asia. And I believe that Bali, especially Ubud, which I'll be talking about here in a few minutes, but Bali, and then I would probably say that Siem Reap in Cambodia is a pretty big hot zone, and then also Bangkok, Thailand. I would say those three are some of the top places, but Bali is probably one or two. It's, it's a pretty major travel destination when you're going to Southeast Asia, and it's a great place. I totally understand why. So the first thing that I did, and this is a little tip that I got whenever I was planning my trip. And the tip is that as soon as you leave the airport, instead of trying to get a taxi or anything like that right outside of international arrivals, you take a hard left and you walk maybe 100 yards or so and you arrive at the domestic arrivals portion of the airport. And, you know, instead of like 20 or 30 taxi drivers yelling at you trying to, you know, scam you out of some money that you just pulled out of the ATM, you know, they're kind of just over there playing checkers and just leaning up against the walls and things like that. And, you know, I might not have saved any money, but just getting a taxi and 
haggling a price and you know showing him where I needed to go and things like that. It was just a lot simpler, simply because I walked you know a hundred meters over to the, to the domestic terminal instead of trying to fight through the arrivals. So that would be my first tip. Once again, I don't really know if it saved me any money or not. I didn't have anything to compare it to, but it was definitely an easier experience. Uh, next, you know, I stayed my first night at Sonor Beach. And the reason I picked Sonor Beach to start off at was because it's a departure location for the fast boats to Nusa Penida, and it's really close to the Dimpasar Airport. And so it's a really nice beach. You have a great, um, you have a great view of the volcano there on the island. It's a beautiful beach. There's some resorts there. There's lounge chairs that you can just lay up on the beach. It's really nice. You can get some great seafood there. And I literally woke up and walked like five minutes to get to my fast boat um, departure the next morning. So highly recommend Sonor Beach, uh, especially if you're planning on going to Nusa Penida or to the Gili Islands. So, you know, I, I took a fast boat to Nusa Penida, and there's a few tips that I would recommend about this place. It's an amazing location. I definitely recommend that you go, but a lot of people simply take day trips from Bali to Nusa Penida. And although I honestly think you could get, you know, like 90% to 100% of everything on that island done in a day trip, being able to be there before the tourists arrive and be there after they leave just heightens the experience. Uh, I believe that the first fast boat leaves around maybe 7.30 in the morning from Bali to Nusa Penida, and the last boat leaves Nusa Penida around maybe 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So anywhere before 8, 8.30 in the morning to after 5 at night, you have the island almost tourist-free. Obviously, there are some tourists who stay there, but not a lot. And so I was able to do that. I stayed at a great hotel. Um, it was sort of like a little bungalow type deal. It was really neat. And it, it was a little bit more expensive than say my hostel in Ubud or even my little homestay there in Sonor Beach, but it wasn't too expensive. And I'm staying on this little amazing island in a hotel. So, you know, it was, it was worth it and it really didn't break the bank, and I would totally recommend doing that, simply because uh, I went to Clinking Beach towards the end of the day, and it was close to 5 o'clock, so there weren't very many tourists there at that time, and it was just a totally different experience than I would have had if I had been there at like noon with the crowds of people you know, who showed up on my fast boat that morning. So right off the bat, I would totally recommend getting an e-bike. And, you know, whenever I was planning for this trip, I heard so many conflicting stories about e-bikes and all the horror stories about people getting in wrecks and breaking things and having to go to the ER and getting scammed and needing stitches. And all the while in the back of my head, even though I'm reading these and thinking I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, in the back of my head, I'm just like, this is the only option. I have to do this. <laughs> There's just something about having the freedom in your own transportation. You know, it's it's so cheap to rent an e-bike. It was like $5 a day. Um, you just have the flexibility to go where you want, when you want. And it's I just love having that flexibility. Now, I did have a little minor accident, which I'll come to here in a minute, but totally recommend getting an e-bike. It's totally worth it. And, you know, you just have to be careful. That's all I got to say about it. Um, okay, so the first thing that I did was I went to Pinguyanga, which I'll put this in the description because I'm sure I'm butchering it, the Pinguyanga Waterfall. And this is a water temple on the coast of Nusapanita. If you've seen pictures with um, a blue ladder staircase coming down the cliffs along Nusapanita, that is this water temple. It's an amazing hike up and down. It's a really neat experience and the views are amazing. So highly recommend um, checking out that waterfall. Now after that, I drove to Broken Beach and Angel's Billabong. They're right next to each other. And it was indeed a broken beach. Um, I really, you know, I don't know what to say besides the fact that the entire 
island is paved and amazing. There's a few potholes here and there, but from all the reading that I had done, it seemed like this was a terrible place to drive, and it really wasn't. As long as you're a semi-decent driver, I had never ridden an e-bike before in my life, and I figured it out. Um, now, I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, I hit a dirt road. And, you know, even if you've just ridden a pedal bicycle, you know that dirt roads can be dangerous. And so, you know, I slow down, I, I pump on the brakes there, and I'm being a safe driver, and I'm, I'm going really slow. I have both legs, you know, straight to the side of the bike so that if I fall in either direction, I can catch myself. Like, I'm going two miles an hour, I have both my safety gears on, and I am, I'm not going to crash. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to be the 1% of people who does not get in a wreck on Nusa Penita Island, and I'm just going to shove it in all the other backpackers' faces that I did not get into a wreck in Indonesia. So I get to this little steep incline, and I'm almost there. Like, I've driven so far. I'm so close, probably like a quarter of a mile to the beach parking lot. I have on my Chacos. I have on shorts. I have on a cutoff, and I am just, you know, I'm just vibing out there on this Indonesian island, and I'm just enjoying my seven weeks and six days that I have left on this trip. And so all of a sudden, I'm literally going two miles an hour down this steep, sandy, rocky embankment, and my front wheel turns the wrong direction. And the next thing you know, I'm just laying on the ground. This bike is laying on top of me. I'm bleeding everywhere, and there's people like driving by in 12 passenger vans, pointing at me out the window, like taking pictures. You know, you can see all the other tourists like wide-eyed, thinking, "Praise the Lord, we did not get an e-bike. This would have happened to us." And I'm just like, "Oh my gosh!" I was literally going two miles an hour, and here I am in the middle of a wreckage crime scene. So I stand up, I have, you know, a big old scar running down my arm that's just bleeding everywhere. I have like puncture wounds in my feet from where the bike had, you know, landed on my foot and I can't get my e-bike to start. And I'm like, are you serious? Like not only am I bleeding, everyone's staring at me, but now I can't get my e-bike to start. And so luckily this nice guy, he stops, he pulls over, he gets out, we fix whatever was wrong and he gets me started up and I ride along. So here's a tip. Tip is to wear closed-toed shoes while you're riding an e-bike in Bali. Now, you know, I heard this tip like 30 minutes later when someone was staring at my gushing wounds, but, you know, it, it really didn't help at that point. So I was like, well, thanks, but it's a little too late for that advice. So I'm telling it to you now. Wear closed-toed shoes. You might not feel as free and as tropical wearing you know boots or tennis shoes but your feet will thank you later so i drive down to broken beach angels billabong they're both beautiful broken beach it's a little cove and um, the ocean has sort of drilled a hole through a little arch um, in the rock and so there's a little arch that allows water into the cove it's really beautiful Angel's Billabong is like right there as well. They're both awesome. Highly recommend it. Um, so I parked there. I washed off all my wounds with my water bottle. And, you know, I'm like, well, shoot, I literally just got here yesterday. I'm going to be here a while. Might as well enjoy it. So I just washed everything off and I just start walking around, enjoying the sights. And so after a while, I went over to, I drove to Clean King Beach. Um, I made sure to, when I got to that steep hill, I went extra fast and made it up to the top. I think that's actually the problem. I was being too cautious. Um, so don't be too cautious because then the sand will get you and you'll fall over and, you know, get a few battle wounds, but you know, free, free souvenirs there in Indonesia. You got to do what you got to do. So Clinking Beach is probably the most famous site in all of Nusa Penida. It's sort of, it's called the T-Rex, um, T-Rex formation there on the island. It's really beautiful. You actually have the option of walking down to the beach, which is sort of in the crook of the T-Rex's uh, um, neck there. I did not do that because my, you know, my wounds were starting to stiffen up a little bit and I was just not feeling that steep hike down 
to the beach. So I can't necessarily confirm or deny how amazing that beach is, but it looked great from the top. So I would assume if you're down for that hike, you know, it'd be great down there as well, especially after you've hiked all the way down, jumping in the ocean would be amazing. If I ever go back, I'll definitely check out the beach. Uh, but I do recommend, you know, you turn left to walk down to the beach. If you turn right, you can actually walk through some brush and there's some trails up there and you can walk along the edge of the cliffs and get some more great views of Clean King Beach and the formations there. And, you know, there's not as many tourists up there and you can just take some really great shots. I was able to take some good photos and I met like one or two other people up there with me. So it was a little distance from the crowds and the shots were pretty great. I also recommend, you know, there's a lot of places to get like fresh coconuts around there. Get a coconut, just sit down, enjoy the view, you know, drink some fresh coconut milk. It's a great experience to have on an Indonesian tropical island. Definitely recommend doing that. So, you know, a few tips there. Wear closed-toed shoes, maybe even some pants while you're riding that e-bike, and just be careful. Um, but honestly, besides that little freak accident, there's I, I was not ever worried. I'd never, you know, ridden an e-bike before, and I did fine except for that um, little mishap. I had to get gas one time and I drove several hours. I probably drove four or five hours on that e-bike. Never had to fill up except for as soon as I got the bike because it was on E. And it cost like $5 a day. I probably paid $5 for gas and then you know $5 for bandages and ointments for all of my oozing wounds. So you know about $20 for two days of transportation. That's not bad. Highly recommend it. Your only other option is really to just get a private driver and that has got to be, you know, astronomically expensive. So e-bikes, way to go. Um, you really have nothing to worry about, you know, just you'll get some free, some free Bali tattoos, I think is what they're called. All right. So when I left New Spanita, I went to Ubud, which is definitely like the mecca of Bali backpacking. Like everyone goes through Ubud. It's a great place. There's hostels, three, four to a street. It's an amazing place, and I loved it just because, you know, it was my first time to stay in a hostel ever, and I'm sitting in my hostel room, and, you know, there's people from India in there, there's people from Israel, there's people from the United States, there's people from Lebanon. I mean, it's like the UN in this little tiny hostel room, and it's just incredible when you've never really had the opportunity to mix and mingle with such a diverse population to be able to have that experience of there's six seven different nationalities in this tiny little room and we can just you know talk about our travel experiences talk about our homes and it was just really cool and you know you there's sometimes where hostels don't work out but for the most part i would say 90 percent of the hostels i stayed in on this trip were you know four four out of five stars and for two three four dollars a night you really can't beat that and just for the experiences that you get while staying at these hostels um you know i would highly recommend trying it at least trying it out i mean don't knock it till you try it um so in uba there's a lot to do the first thing um is the monkey forest and the monkey forest is hilarious because you know it's like a little piece of jungle in the heart of the city and you go in there and it's you're literally in a forest and there's like monitor lizards running around and baby monkeys climbing everywhere but the funny thing about it is you have to pay to go in but if you literally just sit down outside there's a million monkeys just crawling around so if you don't feel like paying you know there's monkeys outside so don't really worry about it but going inside the monkey forest was pretty cool it was just like a totally different world in there um so it was a cool experience i'd never seen so many mean monkeys in my life there were a lot of baby monkeys, and so all the mamas were really aggressive. It was, it was pretty terrifying, honestly. Um, kind of made me dislike monkeys a little bit. I find it interesting because, you know, in the U.S., you don't really see monkeys unless you go to, like, a zoo or something. But as soon as you go to Asia, you know, my first night there in Ubud, I'm walking around the streets, and there's just, like, three or four monkeys running along the telephone wires above my head. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a monkey. And then I look over and there's another monkey you know banging on a car windshield and then you know you look over and there's another one running up the you know ridge line of your hostel roof 
And it's just a whole different world. And at first, you're just amazed by there's wild monkeys. And then, you know, like two weeks later, you're like, good grief, there's another freaking monkey, you know, trying to steal my backpack over here or something. So it's, it's just funny how your mindset can change so quickly of, oh my gosh, it's an oddity too. It happens all the time and you're just over it. Um, so monkey force, I digress just a little bit. Monkey force, pretty interesting. I mean, I feel like there's things that you have to do and the monkey force is one of them. You got to go to the monkey force. You're there, you know, it's literally in the middle of the city. Um, so just check it out. Uh, another cool thing there is the Turataman Saraswati uh, temple. I'll put that one in the description as well. This temple is like in the middle of the city of Ubud. And it, it's really nice. It's a great example of Indonesian architecture. And it's, it's such a unique type of architecture. Um, you'll have to check out some pictures of it. I have some on my Instagram. But just Google like Indonesian temples. Um, just like all of the different imagery and things like that are very unique. And especially for if it's your first experience in the Asian culture, it's, it's very interesting. And I think the Saraswati Temple does a great job in sort of encapsulating the architecture of Indonesia. Um, there's also a Starbucks right next to it. It's really weird. It's like you're looking for the temple. You can't find it. You can't find it. And you're like, huh, I guess I'll just go into the Starbucks. And then you walk in and literally through the window of Starbucks, you're just staring at this, you know, temple. It's pretty interesting. Um, it was pouring, like raining cats and dogs. And so I was in the Starbucks just kind of waiting out the rain. And I just sat down. There was a random open seat at a table with some people. And I just sat down, started talking. And everyone there is a backpacker. Um, and so we just sat down, talked for a while, and then went out and enjoyed the temple. Uh, so it was really cool. Um, the Ubud Palace is right down the street from there. It's a great little complex um, as well. And they have like a bunch of ceremonies. I met some really interesting people there. Apparently, um, people can stay at the Ubud Palace. I don't know. I met this really weird guy there, and he was like trying to tell me how he had a, he, like he was spending the night there and I should like come check it out and I was just like no you know I, I have I have a hostel um, but thanks for the offer um, so you, you never know you know what's gonna happen I'm sure some backpacker would have took him up on it and you know gotten a free a free night's stay um, but it was my first night and I was I was not ready to risk my life so you never know who you're gonna meet um, and the Ubud Palace is no exception um, but check it out. It's a, it's a pretty big complex. You can walk around for quite a little bit um, and just, you know, just look around. There's also a good street market in Ubud. It's definitely not like the largest or craziest street market that I saw or experienced in Asia. But it's definitely a good experience and a great sort of introduction to what your appetite for what Asian street markets are going to offer you in the future. So definitely check out the street market. It won't overwhelm you. And, you know, you can see some cool stuff and just get you started um, down the path of Asian street markets. Uh, probably the last thing here that I'm going to talk about about Indonesia um, is the Pura Limpuyang. And I'll put this one in the description uh, as well, temple. Um, that's not part of the name. It's just the Pura Limpuyang temple. And this is called the Heaven's Gate Temple. It's really amazing. Um, I actually did not um, take a trip to it. It was on my original itinerary, but I nixed it there towards the end just because I kind of ran out of time. But definitely recommend checking out that temple. I look at it on Instagram first, um, but I'm sure you've already seen it. It's one of the most iconic sites from the island. Um, so definitely check that out. One last thing that I did uh, in Indonesia before I move on to my next country was I actually took a... And this might not seem too crazy to some people, but I took a bike taxi. And whenever I landed back on Bali from Nusa Penida, it was like the only option at the port was to take a motorbike taxi. And so it's this little tiny scooter, and I have to sit behind the driver, hang on for dear life, and he throws me this little helmet and is like, put this on. And that was literally the most terrifying experience of my life. Like, I'm barely hanging on. I'm halfway, like, off of this bike. And I have my huge backpacker backpack on that's just pulling me off the back of the bike. 
and I probably had a white knuckle death grip on this bike for 45 minutes, you know, on my drive to Ubud. Uh, I did, I took another bike taxi in Vietnam, and for some reason that one was not as crazy until I burned my leg on the exhaust pipe, which, once again, I learned later to avoid. Um, but, you know, for some reason, the Bali one was just way more terrifying, maybe because it was only like my second or third day. So, you know, I don't know if I'd recommend a bike taxi, especially, honestly, anywhere. It was terrifying. So, <laughs> don't know if I'd recommend it, but it might be your only option. It's definitely way cheaper. Um, you know, it was like maybe one or two dollars for a bike taxi, whereas a car taxi would have been like five or six. And wow, three dollars, I guess. I really risked my life for three dollars. But, um... Yeah, that was interesting, and you know, if you do want to do that, I don't know if you would want to try it out for a 45-minute ride. Maybe start off like around the block or something, and then you know, if if you didn't hate it that much, then let them take you on. Um, but yeah, a bike taxi is a rather interesting concept. Don't know if I'd recommend it, but there you have it. Um, so that's really my that was my time in Indonesia. Uh, I spent let's see, I spent about four, five days in Indonesia, um, which I crammed a lot in. You'll notice throughout the next couple weeks, I crammed a lot into every location. Um, so I spent that first night on Bali. I spent a night on Nusa Penida, spent a whole day in Nusa Penida, got all that stuff done. Um, I would say two days in Nusa Penida would be amazing. Um, two nights in Nusa Penida would be great. Uh, I would definitely recommend that, especially if you like go with someone um, like if you went like on a honeymoon to Nusa Penida, that'd be awesome. Um, uh, and then I spent, I believe I spent two nights in Ubud. So that, that's about five days there in Indonesia. It was a great amount of time. Um, another thing that you could do in Ubud is the rice terraces. I forgot to mention that early, the rice terraces and that pure Limpuyang I didn't end up doing, but both of those are amazing, um, touristy places as well. So with that being said, I got quite a bit done in Bali. There are so many different islands in Indonesia. I can't, I don't even want to take a guess. There's like a thousand. I don't even know. There's a ton of islands in Indonesia. I really feel like, you know, Bali is amazing. Nusa Penida is great. Uh, a lot of people I met went to the Gillies. Uh, but, you know, I feel like if I went back, I would want to try looking into different islands as well. I really don't have any suggestions for you on that one. But just unless you're just really set on going to specific things on those islands, if you're just wanting to go to a tropical location like Indonesia, check out some of the other islands. I know Komodo is one where all the Komodo dragons are. That one would be pretty legit. Um, but maybe just some lesser known ones that, you know, you just have to Google and look on Google Maps and pick a random island and see if you can get there somehow. Um, there's a lot of options there. And that's one of those places where I think if you tried hard enough, you could find an amazing spot that's relatively unknown. And that would really, that would be a really cool experience. So definitely, uh, if you have the abilities, uh, maybe do some off-road backpacking there in Indonesia. See if you can find some cool random islands um, that, you know, it's not that touristy. And let me know about it. I promise I won't tell anybody else, but I'd like to know what you find. Uh, we can keep it on the DL, uh, and so maybe I can check it out one day as well. So after Bali, I flew to Kathmandu, Nepal, and I actually flew through Malaysia. I flew through Kuala Lumpur, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this story earlier or not, but this is where I almost missed my flight. Um, I sat on the Dimpasar uh, tarmac for about an hour, and I literally landed at the exact same time my uh, my Kathmandu flight was supposed to take off. And so I really didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to Malaysia before, but I had to leave one airport or one separate terminal and go to another completely different building. So I had to take like a tram to get there. And so I'm like sprinting through the airport. I'm just like waiting on this tram to get there. And I finally sprint to the gate as they're boarding. Uh, but I made it on my flight, made it to Kathmandu in time, um, so it was no worries. Now, Kathmandu is a very interesting place. Kathmandu is the capital of Nepal. And I always think of capitals as like huge, bustling cities. Like 
if you're in a third world country, the capital might be like decent. Like that's the one place where they're going to try hard <laughs> to look good. But Kathmandu, I love Kathmandu. Don't get me wrong. But Kathmandu was the dirtiest, most unkept capital city that I have ever seen in my life. There were dirt streets. Um, there were livestock walking around everywhere. Um, it was interesting to say the least and definitely not what i expected um so just keep that in mind when you arrive kamandu is going to be you know you're you're going to be in it when once you get to kamandu let me tell you now nepal for u.s citizens at least you do need to get a visa but you can get a visa on arrival uh the visa on arrival was really it wasn't difficult to obtain but there were just a lot of different places that you had to go within the airport to get the visa. Normally, you know, you just go up to a little stand that sells visas, you pay for them, they put it in your passport, and you're good to go. Um, but in Nepal, you had to go to a little kiosk, you had to fill out your arrival information, then you had to go stand in a line and talk to some customs officers, and you had to pay for your for your visa. And then you had to go fill out some more paperwork, and then you had to go to the immigration officer. So there was like three stops before you even went through immigration, and it, you know, there wasn't a lot labeling the process. You know, you kind of just okay. There's some people filling out paperwork over there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna walk over there, and you do that, and then oh, there's some people standing over there too. I wonder what they're doing. So then you you walk over there. Um, it might be a little bit better now. I don't know. That was two years ago. I doubt much has changed in two years. It wasn't the easiest process, but I mean, it wasn't that difficult. You can figure it out. Um, I'm for, I'm sure you can. Um, so once you get your visa on arrival, um, then more than likely you're going to be heading to Tamil and Tamil is the backpacker district of Kathmandu. And the convenient thing about this is if you can spot another backpacker, that's on your flight, you can so, you know, meet up with them and share a taxi into Tamil. And so that's what I did. Um, there was a girl who had flown both legs of a flight with me from Bali, and she had sat next to me on part of the flight, and then I recognized her once I landed in Kathmandu. And so we were standing in line behind each other at immigration, and I just was like, hey, are you going to Tamil? And she said, yeah. And, you know, it, we, I don't even know if we showed each other what um, hostels we were staying at or whatever, but Tamil is just such a, you know, broad location like here when you're going to Tamil that it really didn't matter. So we were just like, hey, we're both going to Tamil. Let's split a taxi. And so once we got through immigration, we caught a taxi just to take us to Tamil. And, you know, you split the bill and it was awesome. Saved you a few dollars. And, you know, you get to meet and conversate with some other backpackers along the way. So that was a cool experience. Um, you know, a lot of times there's not one specific place where all backpackers are going. But Kathmandu is one of those locations where, hey, there's a backpacker, 99% chance they're going to Tamil. Let's work out a deal where we can, you know, split a cap. So definitely be on the lookout there when you're at the airport to try and, you know, share a taxi like that. Now... You know, when I was in Nepal, this was the longest I was in a location. And I'm going to do a totally separate episode um, here in a few weeks about my time in Nepal because I actually went on a trek. And taking a trek in Nepal is something that I would recommend 100%. Um, there, are, there are several different treks that you can take. Um, the most popular is obviously the Everest Base Camp trek. And, I mean, Everest is the tallest mountain in the world and, you know, arguably the most famous mountain in the world. And so Everest Base Camp Trek is very popular and it's actually what I signed up to do. I wanted to do the Everest Base Camp Trek. Um, it's something that I'd wanted to do for quite a while, quite a few years. And so that's one of the main reasons I went on this trip to begin with. I really... When I started planning this trip, I wanted to do the Everest Base Camp Trek in Nepal, and I wanted to go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And other than that, like those are my two figureheads of what I wanted to do on this trip, and everything else really just fell into place around it. So, you know, going on a trek is an incredible experience, one of the craziest experiences of my life. 
And so I, I will talk about it a little bit here, but I definitely am going to do a totally different episode, just, you know, bookmarking the entire trip. Um, but a few other treks in the area are the Annapurna Base Camp Trek, which I ended up doing. So that'll I'll tell that here in a few minutes. Um, and then there's also the Annapurna Circuit. Um, the Annapurna Circuit does not go to Annapurna Base Camp, I don't believe. Uh, it just goes through the Annapurna Mountain Range. And that's that's the one where a lot of people did it on their own. Um, it's a pretty self-explanatory route, I suppose. There weren't as many people doing the Annapurna Base Camp Trek on their own. Most people had guides. And I had a guide, and I would definitely recommend taking a guide um, unless you've done that thing a lot. There were quite a few different cutbacks and you know forks in the road where I had no clue where to go. And I'm sure if I had a good map, I could have figured it out. Um, but having a guide and especially a porter, a porter was really nice to have. Um, I definitely would recommend it. And so if you want any of that information, you can feel free to DM me. I'll send you that information um, if you would like it. So the thing about treks is, you know, the the airport where you land for Everest Base Camp is one of the most dangerous airports in the world. I believe it's called the Lukla Airport. Um, I didn't write it down, but just thinking back, I believe it's called the Lukla Airport. And it is one of the most dangerous airports in the world. It's like on the side of a mountain. It's a really short runway. And so if there's any sort of bad weather, uh, they're not going to fly into that airport. And so I was there in, I guess I was in there in June. And June is like literally the end of season. Like I was the last um, trek group that was going out for any base camp treks with my company. And... I was actually supposed to go on a trek with like, I think there could have been up to 12 people in my group. And I was the only person in this tour, which I kind of struggled with because I wanted to be in a group with multiple people so that I would, I was traveling solo. So this was a way for me to meet other backpackers and sort of have, you know, have that time to spend with other travelers. Um, But it ended up being, it was a really cool experience to be on my own with my guide and my porter. Um, we got pretty close. It was a cool experience just to hang out with them every single day. Um, we hiked over 100 miles in 10 days. So I feel like anytime you do something you know, slightly grueling like that, you're going to form some sort of relationship. So that was really cool. Um, and you know, even though I didn't have the experience of being able to hike the whole way with a group of people, I did meet other groups throughout the way at different tea houses and things like that that I was able to form relationships with. And so it all worked out in the end, and I really you know, enjoyed my experience on that trek. So you know, that's the reason why I was not able to go on the Everest Base Camp trek because the, um, the weather wasn't cooperating. So I sat at the airport for two full days waiting for a flight to Lukla. Never happened. They just constantly kept getting canceled and canceled. And finally, my guide was like, look, we're going to have to change up um, what we're doing or else, you know, I had a flight in like 12 days and the, the trek was 10 days. And so he was like, look, if we don't leave now, we're not going to get back in time for you to make your, your flight out of the country. And so we ended up changing to the Annapurna um, base camp trek. Um, it is always an option. If you want to take a helicopter, you can charter a helicopter to take you to Luke Club. That's a 100% option all the time, but it's going to cost you, it was going to cost me like five or six hundred dollars one way to get there and that was splitting it with someone else and that was just i mean i had no security that i was able to take a flight home which means i might have had to have paid you know another five or six hundred dollars you know once i finished the trek and i just wasn't willing to pay six hundred dollars right out of the gate of this backpacking trip and then possibly another six hundred um after two more weeks so i ended up going to annapurna base camp trek it was a great experience, and I, I heard later on that that was the better of the two. Everest is more famous because you're going to Everest, but Annapurna is the best scenery and the best view of the Himalayas, and I agree. I mean, I didn't get to see the views of the Himalayas or of um, Everest, and that's Trek, but you know, I was able to go to Machu Picari's base camp, Annapurna's base camp. The Himalayas were amazing. The peaks were just incredible. 
Um, and I'm really glad I had that experience. So definitely recommend it. And I will be having another podcast here soon. Probably after I finish this whole summer podcast, I'll come back to um, backpacking the Annapurna Base Camp Trail. That was a great experience, and I can't wait to share each day along that trek with you. Um, okay, so I, I, I really digress there, but to start off the Annapurna Base Camp Trail, we flew to Pokhara, and Pokhara is, Pokhara is called the gateway to the Himalayas, and it's a great place to visit. I've known people who visited Nepal, and they just went to Pokhara, um, and you know that's a great way to see the Himalayas in and of itself. So whether you want to trek or not, um, I definitely recommend, you know, taking a short flight to Pokhara. I'm sure it was a cheap flight. Um, it was included with my trek, so I'm not really sure how expensive it was, but I wouldn't guess more than $20, $30 round trip for that flight. Um, okay, so back in Kathmandu, I had some time before, you know, my trek and after my trek in Kathmandu. Um, and so there's a few things that I did there. The first thing that I would recommend is Garden of Dreams. This is in like downtown Kathmandu, and Kathmandu is wild. Um, you know, there's traffic, there's horns honking, there's people everywhere, and it's just a, you know, it's an Asian experience. Um, think India. I mean, that's really what it is right there. Um, and so the Garden of Dreams is really amazing. It's sort of like a compound, and you go inside these walls, and you cannot hear anything like you are you would have no idea if someone just dropped you in the garden of dreams that you were in the middle of Kathmandu. no way it's incredible it's a beautiful beautiful garden and it just gives you some peace and serenity from you know the hectic outside world of Kathmandu. Uh, i went there towards the end of my time after my trek it was my last day in Kathmandu, and i went to the garden of dreams and it really just gave me time to just sit relax and sort of just take a break um, from the two weeks of craziness that I'd had on my trip so far. Another place that is really interesting is the Pashupatinath Temple. I'll include that in the description as well. Um, the Pashupatinath Temple is really unique in the fact that it is a mortuary temple. And this is a place where people will take the dead and they cremate them on the banks of the river there. And I'm not sure what the river is called, but it runs through Kathmandu. And it's one of um, it's one of the only temples that they do this at. There's one in India that's really famous where they cremate um, people and put them into the river there as well. Um, but this is that temple in Nepal. And it's very interesting. Um, I was luckily, I don't know if luckily or you know, or not, but I was able to see them cremating people. And it was, it was really a, a touching experience. I don't know. It was really, I wasn't expecting it. I was kind of just exploring and I kind of stumbled across um, an entrance that led me right onto the river where they were cremating some people. And just to see, they have these little stalls set up and each one of them is set up to cremate someone. And so like three or four stalls down, there was actually a huge roaring fire going on where someone um, was having a funeral. And then a stall closer to me, they had already had a funeral and there was just a mound of ashes. And some local kids were just sweeping and kicking the ashes into the river like no big deal. And then like right next to me, one stall closer, Downriver from all of these cremations was a group of people washing their laundry in this ash-filled river. And it was just a really it was a really crazy experience. And I definitely recommend um, going there. I think it's something that is unique. Um, but I don't want you to think of it as necessarily a tourist attraction. Um, because I don't think it should be that. It's more of just a cultural experience that if that's something that you'll appreciate, um, you should do. I saw um, some people taking guided tours there, and they're all really respectful, so you know I'm not knocking that whatsoever. Um, but that's definitely a place that if you visit, um, you need to know what you're getting into when you visit it. And it was definitely a unique cultural experience that I'm glad I was able to witness 
uh, and I definitely won't be forgetting that anytime soon. So the Pashu Patinath Temple, very interesting, um, and you know it's just really going to stick with you um, if you go there. Now, one thing I was tempted to do when I was in Tamil, um, or in Kathmandu, I suppose, was walk to Tamil. And it, it looks very tempting because it's about two, two miles maybe from Tamil, um, the Kathmandu airport is. And so when I landed, I landed at night into Kathmandu. And so, you know, um, I decided I didn't want to walk around Kathmandu at night, you know, first night there. That didn't seem very smart. And so I took that shared taxi ride into Tamil. But that last day in Kathmandu, I had quite a bit of time. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to spend my last few dollars at um, the Kathmandu Steakhouse, which I had seen like bumper stickers stuck on every tea house on my Annapurna Base Camp Trail for Kathmandu Steakhouse. And the Kathmandu Steakhouse logo says, um, probably the best steak in Kathmandu. And so every time I saw this, I was like, I have got to try probably the best steak in Kathmandu. And so the last day I went to Kathmandu Steakhouse and used the rest of my money. And it probably was the best steak in Kathmandu. I, I don't know. That's the only one I had. Um, and so um, I ended up walking to the airport from Tamil. And, you know, I made it. And I was totally drenched in sweat. And I was exhausted. But I made it. So, you know, if you're down to walk, you know, a couple miles in 100 degree heat um, through little back alleyways from Tamil to Kathmandu um, Airport, go for it. It's not necessarily something I would recommend um, right off the bat. But, you know, if you want to try it out, it works. And, you know, do what you got to do. Okay, so a few last things I'm going to recommend that I didn't mention earlier. Um, about Nepal is moimos, which are a type of kind of like a dumpling that they have there in Nepal. It's, you know, filled with meats and spices, and I had them several times. They're amazing. They're usually pretty cheap, and I highly recommend that. Um, next is a location, and it's Durbar Square. And this is like a really, you know, popular place to visit in Kathmandu, um, but they were just charging an ungodly amount to get inside for a ticket. It was something like 10 US dollars. And I just was not willing to pay that to get into what I, I honestly don't even know what's inside Durbar Square. So it wasn't worth it to pay like $10 to get in. So, you know, that's an option. You might want to look it up to see, you know, why it's famous, if that's something you would want to do. For me, I did not go. It did not seem worth it to me. Um, but that is an option. Finally, the last thing, um, actually two more things, really quick, Fire and Ice Pizza um, is awesome. I ate there after my trek, which I feel like, you know, really just ups, you know, how good things are um, in a location after you've hiked for 10 days straight. But Fire and Ice Pizza, um, it's a pretty famous place in Kathmandu, and I recommend stopping by. They have a lot of, like, unique specialty pizzas. And, you know, if you're just missing, like, Eastern American food, whatever, um, you know, if you don't, if you're tired of Asian or Nepalese food, try Fire and Ice Pizza. You can get a nice ice-cold Coca-Cola, um, and it's a great place to just sit, relax, and enjoy a good meal. The last thing I'm going to talk about is a scam that runs in Kathmandu. Um, I... I had read about this a few times and you know you always read about certain scams and there's always the ones that you see every once in a while like um, just the normal pickpocket scams things like that um, but this is one that was sort of unique that I had never heard of before um, but when I read about it I was like huh that's interesting and then I actually saw it in action a couple times in Kathmandu um, but it's where uh, mothers with babies will come up to you and they'll basically be begging, but they'll want you to buy, uh, or they'll ask for money for formula for their baby. Um, and oftentimes they'll take that money and they won't need the formula or they won't buy formula and they'll buy, you know, other stuff or give it to 
someone who's like telling them to go beg for money. Um, so that's a pretty big scam in Kathmandu. Um, that's that's a pretty rough scam. I mean, you're standing there and there's this lady with a baby asking you for money to feed her kid, but you think back to, oh man, I read about this scam and how this lady's like getting taken advantage of, and I shouldn't do this. So it's really hard. Um, that's a that's a rough scam to turn away. Um, and so you know you you do with that knowledge what you want. I mean, if you want to give them money, I'm I'm not really sure what's happening to it. Um, but that's up to you. But that is one scam that I read about, and I did actually see an action a few times um, uniquely to Kathmandu. I didn't see it anywhere else, um, and that's the only place I read about um, that had that scam. So just just be on the lookout. Um, be careful. Um, on a backpacking trip, you know, you're going to run across a lot of people, and so you just have to, you know, outweigh the, the pros and cons and, you know, just, just watch out for yourself and other people while you're on um, a backpacking trip. You know, I've talked for uh, quite a while here today. I think I'm probably reaching the 45-minute or so mark. Um, and so I, I don't think I'm going to be able to get to India today. I'll leave you on a cliffhanger to get you back next week. I'll try and talk about India, Sri Lanka. Uh, I Looking at today, I don't know if I'll be able to get to Myanmar. I just have so much to share, um, but maybe get to Myanmar as well. Um, but until then, I'll leave you with a cliffhanger about India. I was standing in the middle of the India Gate little square there. It's an amazing place. It reminds me of the Arc de Triomphe there in Paris. So I'm just standing there in awe. It's, it's a ridiculously crazy place. I mean, there's vendors everywhere. There's people selling you stuff out of their backpacks. There's like dirty, dirty kids running around half naked. And it's just absolutely wild. And so I'm just standing there staring at the India Gate. And this guy comes up to me and he's asked me, hey, do you want to get your ears pierced? And I do a double take, and I'm like, say what? Do I want to get my ears pierced? And he's like, yeah, and he pulls out his backpack, and there's a little briefcase, a dirty old briefcase. He opens it up. There's some needles and some, like, old earring studs in there, and he's like, you want to get your ears pierced? And I'm thinking to myself, there are some crazy things that I'll do on an adventure like this, especially when I'm backpacking Asia, but getting my ears pierced by some rusty needles in the middle of New Delhi, India, is not going to be one of them. So... <laughs> That's just one of my crazy stories from India. If you want to hear a few more, check back next week. Um, that episode will be up here Tuesday, so check it out. Until then, if you'd like to see any pictures from my Indonesia or Nepal trip, check those out on my Instagram, at Educate Your Travel. I also have pictures of India, Sri Lanka, basically every trip I've ever taken. There's stuff up there, so if you want to get a head start on some of my upcoming episodes, check those out as well. Leave me a message there. Leave me a message here. I'd love to hear from you. Any feedback, anything you've got for me, if there's things I should have added to my itineraries, or if you've got some crazy stories from some of the places I talked about today, I'd love to hear them. But until then, remember it is up to you to make your life interesting. So get up, get out, explore the world, take that next adventure. Thank you so much for joining me here again today. And I can't wait to catch up with you next time.